this time as I sit in front of you all, the thought arose, I wish you could all come and sit here and see how beautiful you look. To see the eyes and faces of 90 meditators who've been meditating six days together strikes me. And it's quite nice just to be silent with you up here. And that's not because I don't have something to say. <laughs> Sometimes it can be like that though. In fact, I think it was right here at IMS, a teacher, um, Vimolo, many years ago. He came to take his seat as the Dharma teacher for the evening talk, sat in silence for a little bit, looked at the yogis, you all, <clears throat> and said, sorry, Holy Spirit's not at home tonight, <laughs> and got up and left. <laughs> Can we trust it? Can we trust the silence and what arises for us here and what doesn't arise for us here? Our familiar patternings, the tracks that we're used to going down in our head, in our body, our energetic patterning, that's what's familiar to us and that is also what stands out in the silence, right? You see your patternings and your familiar programmings and you go, oh yeah, there's that, that program, I know that one. But also the unfamiliar starts to stand out. That which we haven't seen about ourselves. That which is unfamiliar that isn't even about myself. It's unfamiliar experience. And this is the invitation to study and know, come into a wise relationship with, yes, the patternings, the sankharas, those grooves and tendencies that have a momentum in us, that show up, that color, that affect the citta, the heart-mind. We see them, we study them, we learn how to handle them. And that's not all that happens here. So tonight I want to speak a little bit about the relationship with silence. Coming from where we are in the instructions at the moment of looking this morning at thought, the relationship of thought and silence. 
And I was just thinking as I came down, I remembered um, quite some years ago, I had the privilege to teach in, for a couple of years, a few years in a row in Israel with my teacher. He was the teacher there. And um, a man came for, I think on the first day for an interview, I think it was just a six day retreat, and he came for the first, second day maybe. And he was um, a screenwriter and very creative, beautiful, you know, creative mind, came up with lots of very interesting things. And he said something like, oh, hi, you know, I'm whatever his name was. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know if I go for all this here and now stuff. He said, you know, that just got invented in the 60s anyway. He, uh, he hadn't quite got the context yet. And he said, I really like my mind. I said, fine. Yeah, fine. This isn't about disliking your mind. Because I like, you know, all the... And then you can do this. And fine. Nothing really to say, really. Fourth day, he came back and he said, help. <laughs> help. He goes, I'm so tired of it. He said, yes, it can be brilliant and all of that's true. But I'm so tired of it. He said, is there anything else? So, like, okay, I'm, I'm willing to do this here and now stuff that was invented in the 60s. <laughs> All right, and, and then he plugged in and, you know, his retreat unfolded from then. So we have to, on one level, get disenchanted. It's not about being anti-mind. I hope we've established that clearly enough. But becoming a little disenchanted with trying to make it our home. Just a little bit like, oh, a bit weary little world weary of our own mind <laughs> yeah even though it has a place and that place I think has already been said can be in the service of what it is we really love so here's a poem one place um, Yanai and I teach a, each year is in Sweden and this is a Swedish poem I won't read it in Swedish, although that would be interesting. <laughs> you could, sometimes it's not about the words, right? A lot of really where we learn is, is the words can point and the resonance is what was really important. And in fact, the Swedish people I read it to, they really liked it in English, so here we go. <clears throat> it's from a poet called Thomas Tranströma. Tired of all who come with words. Words, but no language. I went to the snow-covered island. The wild does not have words. The unwritten pages spread themselves out in all directions. I come across the marks of roe deer's hooves in the snow. Tired of all who come with words, words but no language, I went to the snow-covered island. The wild does not have words. The unwritten pages spread themselves out in all directions. I come across the marks of roe deer's hooves in the snow. Language but no words. Language, but no words.
So do you love it, the silence? Do you hate it? Do you go between the two? Some people quickly fall in love with the silence. Can be a relief, can be like home. There can be a resonance in the solitude with each other. A relief of not having to try to know each other only through the words. But meeting each other with a shuffle of our slippers. It's not so different to roe deer's hooves, right? A shuffle of our slippers. That presence as you pass each other in the corridors. And sometimes we can be there, other times we're ambivalent about the silence, or we don't like it. It's not giving me something. I can't find my resonance. I can't find peace. I can't find my home here. And we start to look somewhere in the environment for something we can resonate with. The heart needs to resonate or else the silence can feel very barren. Trouble is, we keep looking outside. That's where we're trained to look. Have you looked anywhere in the silence for some resonance for your heart? And as I was reflecting on this earlier, I remembered another insight I had in that very same bathroom, the one I talked about the other day, up next to my room in 108. I really like that bathroom. <laughs> and um, 16, 15 years ago, I used to live here with Yenai, and Yenai was the resident teacher. We had the, little, the last little house down on the end of, by the car park down there. And I sat a lot while I was here. I got to sit a lot, and I sat three-month retreat one year and um, you know what it's like sometimes when you're in those moments when there's nothing to do and you might find yourself in that bathroom or something like that, you know, something to do. And I didn't know what was happening. Often we don't know what we're doing till we, there's a moment of mindfulness and suddenly, oh, okay, what's going on here? What am I doing? I know, what am I doing looking at that label again, whatever. And what I found myself doing in the room that's currently my room, 108, that used to be Yenai's office 15 years ago, and I hadn't seen my husband for nearly three months, even though he was in the same building. He hadn't looked at me, he hadn't smiled at me, we were die-hard, (laughs) gung-ho meditators, you know. And I didn't know I was missing him because I didn't miss anyone, I was a gung-ho meditator, right? But I found myself in that bathroom by the sink, don't know what the taps did then, but I had my, started to put my ear near the wall. I didn't know I was doing this because a lot of time we're unconscious. If you ever notice where your mind is when you're not mindful, it's doing something really daft like that. (laughs) (laughs) Internally, you might not be doing it externally, but you know. And I found my ear and it's like, I was trying to listen just to hear, see if I could hear his voice, because he wasn't looking at me or smiling at me. I just wanted something, wanted something familiar, wanted something to resonate with, and he was having a meeting with someone. Suddenly I thought, oops, 
this isn't freely given. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking something that's not offered here, which I was, right? I was grasping after something to fulfill something that, yes, my heart needs to resonate, but I keep looking out there. In realizing that, I dropped back, remembered the practice, then started to feel what it was who was seeking, what it was that felt barren and bereft and wanted a resonance. And then coming back to the silence, trusting the practice to take me to the understanding, as Eugene said last night, where or this morning, that leaves us independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Not because we reject it. Not because there's anything wrong with resonating with each other, it's beautiful. But if my unconscious wish to seek and resonate with something over there is unconscious and I'm not able to resonate here in my location, then I seek towards that and I'm bound, I'm bound, I'm sentencing myself to bouncing between different experiences and never finding home. I seek for my resonance there, I get a little bit and go, phew, I try and avoid the resonance there because that one I don't like. You know, when that person walks by, I, I want to avoid them. And I bounce, I bounce. I'm forever bouncing between experiences and never coming home. And that's what our heart seeks. The end of the bouncing. Bouncing is a nice word for it. It's hell sometimes. It's, it's, it's the, 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 the absence of peace, the complete absence of peace. Hmm. So, One of the beautiful things about silence and coming to a place of practice of silence is that many things can stand out clearly to us. Have things been standing out clearly? Sometimes we wish they didn't stand out quite so clearly. Externally and internally. Our perceptual capacities seem to take on a bit more clarity or a lot more clarity, nature stands out. The definition of the tree stands out. The white of the snow stands out. The crunch of the foot on the snow rings in the ear and is known. It's, in, it's almost like a pristine contact. Internally, things stand out the painful, the lovely, the in-between. One of the things that stands out, one of the gifts of a meditation retreat is that our priorities can start to stand out in the silence again. <coughs> Sometimes we go through our life and because of the momentum, because of this bouncing, this seeking for the resonance in this person or this experience or avoiding that one, the pulling and the pushing, 
with the no peace, we don't have the moments of silence when we can find out what is my priority in life? What is it that I want to dedicate my life to? In the silence that can stand out to us more clearly, it may not have come in those words to you, but we can get a little more aligned and straighter with what it is that our heart truly loves. And it might be that we get clearer <coughs> that, that you love practice. You kind of knew you did. And then you practice, yeah, this is really important to me. Heart comes into alignment, stands out to us. It might be, actually, I'm realizing that what's really important to me is how I serve in the world. And whether that's through big acts or very, very small acts in our life. Sometimes the quality of our service in the very small acts of our life is imbued with meaning and significance. Sometimes our projects are bigger, faster. Not to judge that, but to know where our heart is aligned. Sometimes it can be, I remember one man on retreat, the teacher was offering, he'd come to work at Guy House from Australia and come to be on staff for a year. Got there the first night and the teacher spoke a bit about you know, what is your life dedicated to? What is it, if you, if you only had six months to live, what would you align yourself to? And he actually realized that night, he didn't want to be on staff at Guy House. <laughs> he actually wanted to be at home with his family. He got clear about what was important to him. So if, in whatever way that shows up, it can be many, many things, you know, it might be clear, yeah, I, I want to, I want to cook cakes for people in my neighborhood. Whatever it might be, big or small, if our priorities start to stand out, maybe our love of practice, maybe our devotion to deeply understanding what this life is for. What is it for? <coughs> Letting our priorities stand out in the silence is a huge gift. But we can be ambivalent about the silence also because things do stand out and not everything that stands out is pretty. And I remember uh, many years ago I used to be a school teacher in inner city London and I lived right bang sense slap in the center of London and I used to go to a yoga class that was in the building that I lived in um, on a Monday night we do all our asanas and at the end there's always that part where you lay down and it's quiet. And I always left for that part. And I thought, well, I don't have to go to that part. You know, I'm just someone that doesn't like to lie down quietly after yoga, thank you. Hadn't quite examined maybe why. You know, the justification was, well, I'm busy and I've got to go to school tomorrow. And but sometimes our busyness is a way of staying away from the silence. Sometimes our busyness
is because we fear the pain that may arise. And in that case, for me, at that time in my life particularly, there were things that I was deliberately pushing aside that I couldn't bear to feel and see in myself. Certain things I even knew were there. Actions and behaviors I'd engaged in unconsciously, like probably all of us have done. Through ignorance, because I didn't know better. And the residue, the ripple, the impact of that was coming, was bearing fruit. But it was too hard to bear yet. So sometimes what arises in the silence is the resonance of some of the residue, the residues of our life, the patternings, the things we know about, things we don't know about. And that's what can also bubble up into the silence. We see it clearly. And here in in a period of practice, the silence is a real refuge for that. To let that, what's called in the, the tradition, the karma vipaka, the ripening of the actions that have borne results, it ripens. It's okay. We can bear with it. We can start to learn how to bear with it. Know how to meet it. And as a result, we understand some more about the nature of this life. It's not just the unpretty that arises here, it's also the beautiful qualities arise here in the silence. And it's really interesting because for many people this can be (coughs) equally as challenging. When the heart starts to open, sometimes, and one of the things I'm noticing here and being with you all, there's a lot of beautiful qualities that are emerging in you all. A lot of expression of gratitude and appreciation and many, many other things I could name. And sometimes it's hard to bear with these beautiful qualities that arise. It sounds really strange because they open us, expand us, they dissolve our, our old senses of ourself. And sometimes we'd rather think about them than experience them. So the beautiful qualities, making room for them in the silence. Because if we're really interested in peace and freedom, then we have to consider that there's more to see than we already see. So when we start to be open, to be willing to see more than we already see, 
we are entering the territory of what's not known to us. Sometimes called the unknown, like it's some kind of noun out there, the unknown. But that which is not known to us, that hasn't yet arisen, that hasn't been seen, perceived, cognized, known, on the level of what's personal, the level of what's universal, and the level of what's beyond. This is also what stands out in the silence. And if we're interested in that, we are signing up for many moments of not knowing exactly what's going on. And yet our familiar cognitive mind's job is to try and know what's one of its jobs and figure out and There's a story, maybe you know it, illustrating the way that we limit our sense of what's possible for us. We circumscribe our view of what peace and freedom look like. Probably you've all got a view of what peace and freedom would look like. And if we're interested in this path, we have to even be willing to put a question mark, suspend that, to come and dive into the territory. So the story is, of two turtles, turtle one and turtle two. Turtle one lives in the ocean and has a great time, has the whole ocean to play in and know and visit and explore. And Turtle two lives out of the ocean in this small little puddle nearby. And turtle one walks out of the ocean, comes to visit turtle two and says hi, and Turtle 2 says, hey, how'd you like my puddle? Look at this, as he sits in this very small little puddle. It's not bad, eh? And Turtle 1, and, and Turtle 2 says, hey, what's your puddle like? What's your puddle like? And Turtle 1 says, I can't really explain. You'll have to come with me. So are there any ways that we're circumscribing through our concepts, of course, a limited view? Because that will also stand out in the silence. And that's good news to see that. We see things about ourselves. We also see, quote, uh, characteristics that are not personal that are not about me, that are common to each and every thing and every one of us. And this really stands out in the silence. The characteristic of change, impermanence, anicca. If we hang out in the silence, we see sensations arising and passing and dropping back. Breath, its very nature, it's a microcosm of the whole process of birth. It's born, it arises from the silence, it's born, it has its moment in the sun, it reaches its peak and it starts to drop away and die back and fade and dissolve and dissipate and fade away. what remains. 
Pam asked the question this morning, what remains? We don't always or usually ask that question because we're normally very busy with the things that arise in the past. You've noticed, right? We're busy with the things that arise and pass. They get our attention because they move. The breath moves, the thoughts move, the thoughts really get our attention. Woo, they move so fast. The colors, you know, there's not a whole lot of bright colors here at IMS. There's not a whole lot of things to get your attention. We can start to attune and become more sensitive to this more neutral resonance first it's a little boring we wish there was a few more pictures on the wall or I'd have painted it red in here you know not beige you know something to get a little more resonance from we're attracted to the things that stand out in the silence they get our attention so we see if we study through our direct experience the arising and passing nature the the being born and the dying back not just a breath, not just a foot touching the earth. Have you noticed? You can't kind of make your home in any of these things that are arising and passing because they keep changing. It's not their nature to give you rest on their own. It's not in the, the nature of things to provide you with home once you've got the best breath, an ultimate home. This characteristic of not being able to find a satisfactory home amongst experience is not personal. This is universal. Can we let it stand out here? And one of the ways that it really stands out is through the sound. The sound that's, you know, people who are attracted to silence, like probably you all are to some degree, we come to the meditation hall, we're longing for the silence, because IMS is supposed to be silent, and I really like the silence, and we get here, and 30% of the people are coughing, and it's driving us nuts, and then someone comes in late. And there's all this sound popping out of the silence and we want it all to go away so it can be silent so that I can do my work. Yes, we give attention to the container, absolutely. But peace isn't about rendering everything silent. If peace was about rendering things silent, things whose nature is to arise and pass, then we're going to be busy all our life trying to suppress and push down all the things that make a noise. Do you ever do that? Sometimes? A friend of mine, he said he noticed that, actually he didn't notice until he'd been practicing uh, on a retreat and he came home and he went to one of these local fairs where there was this silly game where you paid 10p or whatever it was and you had a big hammer, and there'd be this, um, these things popping up in different places, and you had to bop them down on the head, right? And get them as fast, you know, to see how many you could get in a minute, whatever it was, trying to render everything back to the ground. 
And he went to the fair and he played this game and then he had an insight. So, oh my goodness, that's what I've been doing in my meditation. <laughs> it's like, yeah, get down, <laughs> be quiet, right? Shush. And we do it with ourselves, and we want to do it with all these other yogis here. No, don't cough, bop, you know. <laughs> don't come in like, bop, ha, okay, now once I've got them all down, then there'll be peace, then there'll be peace. <laughs> right? Oh, God, give ourselves a break. <sighs> no, peace will come when things end. <laughs> That's what we think. That's what it looks like. Because those things seem to disturb us, don't they? And it's true we don't practice in the middle of Piccadilly Circus, or I'd say, or Manhattan Central, or whatever the equivalent is initially but if our practice is to be of any value it's not something we do at IMS and then we go home and something else happens it has to make a difference in our life or, or else what's the point what's the point so if we're trying to eradicate and annihilate the things that are in my way there is never any peace And actually, you know, if you really look deeply into this and study this, that tendency is not so far away from the tendency that we see in our world, where the mistaken view of peace leads people, countries, regimes, to believe that peace will come when we've got rid of those ones. When they are out the way, then this would be a better world. Those atrocities from our human history didn't begin anywhere else other than in our minds. It's very sobering, and if we hang out with our own mind long enough, we understand it. When push comes to shove, those tendencies are very strong. And so a lot of our work in the service of our life and human life and the planet's life is really not just for ourselves. So if we can't make a permanent abiding in our experience, where does that leave us? Where does it leave us? And I want to read you this from the Buddha. He's addressing the practitioners, bhikkhus, it's a word for monks, which for these nine days you're cl closely approximating. Bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still an unenlightened bodhisattva, I myself, subject to birth, aging, sickness and death, sorrow and lamentation, I was seeking for things that were also subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow and lamentation. 
Then I considered, why should I myself, being subject to this condition of change, why do I keep seeking for things that are also subject to change? Suppose that I, there's a lot of repetition, it's from that oral tradition, right? I, myself, subject to birth, old age, sickness and death. Suppose I seek that which is not subject to birth, old age, sickness and death. The unborn, the supreme security from bondage, Nibbana. Holy Spirit's got too much to say tonight. So in the Buddha Dharma, broadly speaking, if I paint broad brushstrokes, you could say that practice can orient in two different directions, or apparently two different directions. In one orientation, we study experience. We study objects, which is what we've been doing here. We study clearly breathing, sensation, thought, feeling, emotion, sensation. We study it. We study experience to really understand it deeply. The other orientation, broadly speaking, is pointing directly at the liberated mind toward that which is already undefiled, free, open, pristine, not bound. These two are not at odds with each other at all, if we understand it. But we study experience, and that's what we've been doing here, studying objects to understand them, not to become an expert meditator, not to become, you know, the best object seer in the world. We study experience to see its nature, and what is its nature? The nature of experience is changing, it's not self. If I cling to it, I suffer. The Buddha said, study experience because that's where you get snagged. That's where you get caught. That's where you get hooked. And look, look, can you really hook up there? Can you really hook up with something that keeps changing? So if we start to see this clearly, and again we see it again and again and again because our tendency is, yeah, I want to hook up with that. If we see this clearly and are willing to look, we can start to become disenchanted. Not in a depressing way, that might happen, but disenchantment, disillusion, in the sense that the illusion of trying to make my home in experience, that is the illusion that can start to be seen as an illusion. Can't do it for me. And this is good news. At first, though, it can feel like, oof, poof, 
what is there? What is there? What remains if I'm if I haven't got my home in any of the experiences, even in the subtle states of mind, or my thoughts, or my house, or my cat. You know, my cat might be where I go for refuge. You know, to stroke it, to have the resonance. If I release, if I am released, and I see that they aren't home, what remains? What remains? What remains. Can you put an answer on that? Maybe you don't need to, but I'd really like you to have the question to hear the question. In our sort of educated thinking, we think the question, what remains? Well, there's something that remains and I'm gonna get that and then I'll go home on Thursday and with my little going home present. And, right? But see if you can stay with the what remains. The question itself, the asking, asking it, the very asking of it has a power. See if you can listen for a moment. We've learned how to respectfully listen to experience, and that will be ongoing. That can deepen. There is no end to the respectful, beautiful quality of meeting experience. And now, simply listen. Can you hear the silence? Are you looking for something here? The one who seeks and keeps searching? Let the silence wash you. Breathe with it. Know it. Come to realize that it's not something outside of you or inside you, and it is both outside you and inside you. Breathe. Listen <coughs> to the sound, the cough arises and drops back. Where is it now? Somebody once went to Ajahn Chah, beautiful, famous teacher in the Thai forest tradition, and was complaining about all the sounds of all the other noisy meditators disturbing him. And he said, it's not the sound disturbing you. It's you that goes out and disturbs the sound. And what tends to happen, you can examine it. I mean, it's really easier said than done. What tends to happen, the sound arises. And if we're really 
trying to protect and circumscribe our little seat of meditation, which has a place. But if we're holding there, the sound arises. Very often we leave ourselves, And we don't like that. We feel bereft. We've left. We've gone. And we blame the person. But actually the pain is that we've left ourselves. Come back. Listen some more. There are lots of beautiful ways to point us to really know that which isn't conceivable. And I don't even really want to call it just silence because that kind of, you know, circumscribes it into a puddle, even if it's a big silence. Try this one out. Are you sitting comfortably? It's a poem I love very much taken me in my practice from a nun in the Zen tradition. See where she's pointing you. She said, 66 years these eyes have beheld the changing scenes of autumn. Ask me no more about moonlight. I've already said enough. Just listen to the sound of the pines and the cedars in a forest where no wind blows. Just listen to the sound of the pines and the cedars in a forest where no wind blows. Don't try to wrap your mind around it. You never will. But it can be known. It's closer to us than our breath. And yet, while the concepts do not really take anything away from this, living as if they were our home, we always feel bereft. So can you tolerate, as one teacher put it, tolerating the inconceivable? that which you can't wrap your head around and yet can be recognized. Sometimes, many, maybe many of you have done this, in the night at retreat, about this time of the retreat when you've already done a lot of the work, not seeking for but sometimes people feel inclined to stay up later into the night. You don't have to. You have to see if it's appropriate for you. But sometimes we can feel drawn. 
when you don't have to be here. It's not on that damn schedule that's, you know, endless. But we're drawn to come and know the silence of the night. Stay as little or as long as you like. Let yourself rest upright and gentle, opening ourselves to what is not yet known, but that we sense, we almost hear the whisper, the whisper of the call of the deathless, unborn, undying. in which there is no more trying to become a better one of these, no more resisting being one of these, because we are, we're one of these. It's a beautiful teaching from um, Sariputra, one of the main disciples of the Buddha, and he was... uh, I think Pamela talked about Ananda, didn't she? The attendant, he was a kind of friendly, cozy one. Saraputra, I I have the feeling, was the kind of, he was the really constant, was he the really concentrated one? That was Moggallana. What was, oh, Saraputra was the first in wisdom, the foremost disciple in wisdom. And I understand actually that, is it Saraputra? <laughs> it's a Mogalana or a Sasha Bridget. We have a we have we have a relic of uh one of the great disciples, but it's not the one I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm sure he I'm sure he wouldn't mind at all. <laughs> it's close enough. It's good enough for folk music, as they say. And Saraputra <clears throat> was describing his process, a group interview with the Buddha or what he was doing. And it reads something like this. He said, I understood. And the thought arose in my mind. Nibbana is the end of becoming. It arose a second time. Nibbana is the end of becoming. It arose a third time. Nibbana is the end of becoming. And he said, and with that, that thought futtered out. And yet he could tell the tale. So if you're drawn tonight or tomorrow night, come back. It's really nice here when you don't have to be here. In the silence and the dark of the night. Let the sound be a vehicle for you. The sounds of the night, the other night, I didn't hear it. I was really sad when I heard there's a coyote, coyote close by. Let the sound arise, drops back, what remains? 
explore that for yourself if you wish. And I want to end with um, a poem. It's another of the gifts that we give each other in the silence. A different angle from what I've just been speaking about. It's from Pablo Neruda. It's a very famous one, Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, Let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victory with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. <coughs> if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing. Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now, I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. from Thomas Merton. There is a reality that is present to us and in us. Call it silence. And the simple fact that by being attentive, by learning to listen, 
or recovering the natural capacity to listen. We can find ourselves engulfed in such happiness that it cannot be explained. The happiness of being at one with everything in the hidden ground of care for which there can be no explanation. May we all grow in the grace and peace and not neglect the silence that is printed in the center of our being. It will not fail us. Please take some time for walking in the silence of the night, indoors or outdoors. And we'll meet back at nine for our last group sitting of the evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.